Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3, Copaganda. Welcome back. This is Episode 3 of the Milk Duds Podcast. Now let's get to it. Um, I've seen Kyrie, I've seen Dwight Howard, I've seen Pat Beverly, all had statements regarding the NBA. Lou Williams, should we play, shouldn't we play? Is it distracting? Is it distracting? Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's tough, right? They got to they gotta make some money. Uh, you know, and these guys are doing a lot, especially a lot of the guys in the NBA, they're doing a lot of different things in the community and they're supporting a lot of efforts. But I don't know. I think you got to put it in context. And I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to contextualize it. And I understand what Kyrie is saying. Uh, I understand what Dwight Howard is saying, uh, especially with the uh, entertainment kind of historically being, being used to kind of sedate the masses and hypnotize the masses where it's like, okay, well, let's get some, uh, you know, appointment television going on, which would be what the NBA would be. Cause I mean, really there's nothing else in, as far as sports going on. Um, I, I see what you're saying. So I, I, I also can see where Kyrie is coming from, where Dwight is coming from. But what I won't agree with is the top 1% telling the rest of the regular folks what to do with their money or how they should be living compared to their money. Like if you're not, if, I, if I'm not going to tell the garbage man to stop going to work because picking up your garbage is distracting from the cause. If you let all the garbage pile up, people pay more attention. Like, no, like most of those dudes, 90% of those guys in the NBA aren't making those guaranteed contracts like and haven't made a, over $100 million like Dwight and Kyrie are who don't care if you play or not. Yeah, Agreed, um, yeah. Kyrie's yeah, actually on the reserve, so he wouldn't have been playing anyway. You know what I mean? And if he's not playing anyway, um, and let's not even talk about what he said when he kicked uh, brown girls off of his boat that time for his party because he wanted all light-skinned girls. But Uh-oh. now you want to talk about Black Lives Matter. But anyway, we'll get to that another time. So somebody like <laughs> him who's not yeah. playing, who's already made a ton of money, and who is just now coming to the party with this movement anyway, should not be telling the last guy on his bench who's just struck, who's not even on the guaranteed contract, who's not even getting paid, and what he is getting paid, 50% of it's take, being taken between taxes and his agent, um, who also is paying for his mom to live and his brother to live or his family members' cancer treatment, like, that they shouldn't go to work because it's distracting to the movement. No, what they should be demanding is that to, in order to go back to play, which all the owners want them to do, the players demand action from the owners to contribute to the cause. And that could bring a whole lot more attention to the cause versus distracting from the cause. Okay. I, I like what you're saying there. Uh, you know, here, here's another here's another way to look at it. If Kyrie and Dwight Howard and all these other guys that are papered up, if they're looking at it and they're saying, hey, look, we shouldn't play, well, why don't you just pay, you know, mutual aid? Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah, all, we're all brothers in here, right, you know? Put it in the pot. You don't want me to feed my family. You feed them then. Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys have missed out on a lot of money. I mean, guys like Steph Curry, they're, they're, they're going to be okay. Kyrie, they're going to be okay. Uh, you know, these guys uh, have, have made and will make so much more money uh but for other guys that are on you know like you were you were talking about league minimum contracts or you know even uh even a little bit more than that. yeah to, yeah exactly 
you know, it, that is the the first thing that I thought about. It's like, man, these guys need to play. Yeah, I, and that's uh, what I'm saying. I, I don't I don't like anybody who tries to dictate what somebody else does to contribute to the movement. But right? do, you, do you think there's any merit to the fact that the movement has so much legs now because everything else is shut down? Yeah, but at the same time, I, I'm not going to tell the my postal workers that, hey, stop delivering mail. What's more important, basketball or mail? Like, I mean, we're not going to tell somebody, I mean, sorry, not what's more important, they're both important. What generates more income or, or revenue for more people? The, the NBA having games and ticket sales people and concessions people and trainers and doctors and players and sports broadcast journalists and all of them or that one person that runs my mail route. Like, I want that, I want both of them to work. And I'm not going to tell either one of them they shouldn't work because what they're doing distracts from the movement. Well, 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 let's be clear, though. It's not, they're not going, the NBA is not going back to full employment, though. Exactly. They're going to be working out of uh, Disney World, pretty much. Um, yeah. yeah. Fans, no concessions. Right. Those concessions that they're working have been unoccupied, right? So, you tournament. And, and, and Corey, your son plays, plays AAU, but I know you've been to Wild World of Sports. There are, if you open up one of those gyms, that's 100 people going back to work. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about multiple gyms, multiple weight rooms, multiple restaurants, multiple hotels and resorts that were closed would now be employing people. You know what I mean? You're talking about TV stations that have full-on sports departments that have been decreased by 75% those people coming back to work to cover the games and the stories and things like that. Like it's not just about those, you know, 10 to 15 dudes that are playing during that game. This is about, like we said, there's a guy right in there. There are a hundred guys right now praying the season goes back on, gets back on because they just got caught up in the G league and they haven't made any real money yet. You know, my outside work revolves around basketball and basketball players from the AAU level all the way up to NBA. And, you know, it's a lot of guys that are ready to come back and play because, as you said, they don't have those lucrative contracts. I actually know two people who just signed their contract. I mean, in the – I want to say it was like maybe February. They got pulled up from the Dream League in February to get a, a, a decent deal, and now they're not even playing. If the season does not begin, you're looking at the rookies who haven't been drafted yet who'll be waiting even longer to begin getting paid. And so they'd be sitting there not making any money so, also. Um, I don't want to necessarily change the subject, but today a report came out that uh, Zeke Elliott, along with a few Dallas Cowboys, as well as some of the Houston Texans, have reported positive for COVID-19, which is a double concern for, you know, sports going back to normal. Does that change anything? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think for me, the only reason you don't go back is for COVID. That, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I like telling somebody they can't go back to work for a uh, for a movement um, that they may or may not even be a part of is one thing because of a personal opinion. Telling somebody not to go back to work that they that they should go back to work for a scientific fact. Um, of something happening that will jeopardize their life is, a, is another thing. So, yeah, I, I definitely think COVID it should be the only reason we're not playing sports right now. I guess the only thing is that begs the question of when is it safe to go back? With the current administration, it's almost as if, you know, we don't know 
what side of their mouth they're speaking out of. And coming right. here in Georgia, I mean, as of tomorrow, everything is allowed to go back to normal. Yeah, and, it's insane. And numbers are continuing to rise. Uh, deaths are rising. Um, and the science doesn't support what they're saying. I understand they want the world to go back to the way it used to be, but that's why you prevent it from happening in the first place so that we don't be where we are now. Exactly. Right. And I think that's actually an interesting point uh, to really build on when we're talking about all the ways in which we are experiencing system failure right now and why people are deciding to take it to the streets and to let their voices be heard in ways that we just quite frankly haven't seen since probably the civil rights. Like if you think about it, Ferguson was just in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Baltimore was just in Baltimore. Uh, you know, um, when they had activity around in, in New York City um, with uh, Eric Garner, you know, that was just that was just there. It wasn't even all over New York City. It was just in, in uh, what was that, Staten Island, you know. Um, now we have simultaneous protest and, you know, I, I mean, I, I could just call the whole thing a revolt, you yeah, know, throughout, or, the, world. Or, throughout like the world. America's, uh, what they call it, uh, uh, Arab Spring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because our country is uh, set up differently than really any other country you can think of, given the um, the way that we have embraced federalism, mm. the, in the way that we have so many different climates, in the way we have, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, we have different divisions as far as it depends on which state you're in or which region you're in, uh, as far as people's politics, and for all of this to happen across all of those different variables, I think is quite remarkable, uh, and I think that it, on the other hand, it's also uh, quite harrowing. What I find to be strange or ironic about the whole thing, as you said, yes, we're, you know, this is like a global thing now. It's like people in Italy and people in, in London are like Black Lives Matter, which is great. However, the narrative changed from the news. Like when, when the news was covering how China was protesting, they was for it. They was yeah. okay with bringing down that regime. However, when it's here in America, they're like, oh, the looting uh the you know the destruction of property right right yeah i mean it's uh it's it's really interesting so if we think about black lives matter what are, what are we six years into the hashtag that's become a movement i want to say about eight eight uh, years Trayvon martin was when it kind of 2012. it's crazy that that's how much time was gone by already yeah there's just so much to unpack here so one of the one of the questions is well, how much is everybody just kind of thumbing their nose at Donald Trump and just piling on, and they see an opportunity uh, just because of his various positions and isms? I mean, we don't even have to go through it. I mean, he's just a shitty person, mm -hmm. and he cares very much so about the optics. He you know, he is in my view a sociopath, mm. and. You know, they're looking for ways to antagonize someone who has no shame. And one of the ways is, okay, well, you are the law and order president, so we'll show you that your laws are illegitimate and there is no order. Mm. And so that's part of, I, I think you have to include that in the formula of like why this is different, at least here in the States. Not, not and, and I mean, actually, that probably is a part of um, the global 
mm-hmm. thing as well. Uh, just because, I mean, he's the he's the face of the whole thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, people, you know, just, I mean, as you said, you know, they kill us or we're killed. It's a thousand deaths a year, right? Three a yep. day, regardless of race. But we we uh, represent about 50% of them. Um, and that's nothing new. But I, I, I kind of relate the George Floyd incident to Bloody Sunday and how the world perceived it. And that is actually what the, the court of popular opinion is actually what started to sway to make them make changes. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting point for sure. Uh, especially because we have so many different videos of you know, modern day lynchings. Mm-hmm. And so what, what is it about this one that, that you think made it different? Well, obviously he was on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, there was three officers standing on top of him or, or on his body. And the gentleman was helpless. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was excessive. So if that was a, a, a technique <clears throat> used to get him on the ground, to get him handcuffed, and you handcuffed him and went on about your business, that wouldn't have been looked away as like a major deal or a big deal. However, right. you put your foot on his neck, you had two other gentlemen behind him um, with their body weight on him as well. And this man died in front of everybody and he didn't have to. Right. And I think also to that point, most of the videos have always been like quick, bam, bam, quick shot. Guys yeah. dead. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't and, they, and they could say, I don't, I need to see more. If you wanted to deny exactly. exactly what happened, you could always say, well, we didn't see what happened before. This was the first one that one took almost 10 minutes to complete, right? You're watching real time, eight minutes and 46 seconds that you could sit there, watch it, see him slowly lose consciousness, slowly lose life, and also hear others around them, him who sound and look like the majority begging for the police officer to let it go, get yeah. off him, do this. And then compounded with that is a dude's reaction with his hands in his pockets, looking extremely indifferent about the whole situation. So now it turned from a race thing for most people into a human rights thing. Mm. And that's what made it get, get, uh, get traction. Once people, can, once people get past the race piece, that's when they can, on, people on the other side, when they get past the race piece, that's when they can finally admit, okay, that was wrong. And so I, I was in a debate with somebody the other day. I said, okay, you know, people were saying, well, white men get killed uh, twice as much as black men by police, by police, unarmed white men. I said, okay, that's fine. But you represent 75% of the country. We only represent 13. Yeah, you know, honestly, I really hate the narrative of unarmed. And for, for such a long time, I, I sympathized uh, with why people use the term unarmed because you're trying to get people to see, hey, look, this person is not a threat. Mm-hmm. I do think that it does something to our collective uh, psyche and view on the humanity of black folks, though. Because in a state like Georgia, you can open carry long guns. Mm. It shouldn't matter if you are unarmed. You can concealed carry handguns. It shouldn't matter if you are unarmed. That's a great point. These things are ways in which we try to further the conversation in order for people to be able to digest it. Uh, But I wonder how much of it actually puts it in a way in which people feel like they need to save us. I mean, that's why I want want to 
just side note, that's why I love you guys. As I said earlier, you guys make me think. And it's almost as if what you just said was an unarmed man getting killed. It's almost like saying black on black crime. Yeah, yeah. In a way, I can, I can see that, yeah. Because well, me, I, I, me being- I would, actually, I would actually rephrase that though. Go for it. Un- to, to use the word unarmed in, in terms of justifying a person's humanity, is very similar to saying a college-educated um, black man mm. wearing a suit. Mm. There you go. There you go. It's respectability. Like yes. we we have been so trained to appeal to respectability from our oppressors that we are making arguments for the validity of people not facing summary execution for the most petty offenses, like a twenty-dollar counterfeit bill. Or sleeping in your car at Wendy's. Right, right. Falling asleep. Like, these are things that, you know, conservatives have told us reasons why we should love our country because we, we, we don't live in a country where if you caught, get caught stealing, you get your hand cut off. Mm-hmm. And yet we live in the same country where if you fall asleep in your car at a Wendy's to, you know, sleep off drunkenness, you end up getting shot. Where... If somebody who is an employee making minimum wage at a small grocery store uh, has to be deputized to contact the police in the event of a counterfeit bill, and then that call to the police ends up and it results in a man's murder. Like, these are the things that happen. Where a clerical error um, results in a no-knock raid that murders uh, uh, Breonna Taylor. Like, these are the areas, and these aren't these aren't one-offs. These aren't errors of human flaws these are errors of the state because they require multiple levers and pulleys to be operated on within the functioning of our government in order for these murders to stand i agree and that is why we have to defund the police yeah you know it's interesting that you say that because here in atlanta obviously uh what's Hot on everybody's mind is the case that we just mentioned, and uh, you know, with uh, Rashard Brooks, and uh, it's been it, it's been hell here the last couple of days. And so, we're, you know, we're, while we're talking about, hey, look, basically, let's reform, and they were like, no, police, police unions, the institution of police has no desire to reform. We've been talking about reforming police uh, for all of my adult life, all the of my, actually all of my entire life, the entire criminal justice system, right? The whole carceral state. And the only thing they do is, you know, say, okay, well, let's make, uh, you know, Democrats, let's make body cams and, uh, you know, uh, mandatory period and chokeholds, let's ban them. Chokeholds did not, ban of chokeholds did not save Eric Garner. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, while we are having these conversations in real time, and this is, uh, you know, such an amazing point in time, uh, it's been reported that 19 Atlanta police officers resigned over the weekend and that they, uh, they say that morale is at an all-time low. So you say, get your knee off my neck, and they say no. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to get you. I'm not even going to retaliate. I'm going to get you up off my neck. He's like, okay, well, I'm gonna take my ball and go home. I quit. What? That I mean, that is the behavior of a terrorist organization. 
that level of extortion, trying to uh, pandering with fear and threatening folks saying, hey, look, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, we, we go on strike so that way you don't have any quote unquote public safety. Those are the methods of terrorists. I almost welcome it because if they don't, they, those are the people that don't need to be there. And if we need to refill the ranks with people that look like us, that's going to take pride in policing our community, serving and protecting the way that it was designed to be, then I'm all for that. I mean, they got to go one way or the other. I agree. And I, I, I was just, I, go ahead, oh, go ahead, Josh. Not, well, we ain't, heard, we ain't heard from you. Go ahead. I think one of the other things that's funny to me and it's it's quite hysterical to me is i guess the consternation and the anxiety of the black bourgeoisie uh particularly about the idea of defunding the police is this idea notion that what do we do if you defund the police we won't have anybody to protect us and i'm thinking to myself when was the last time you engaged the police in the last 12 months or 24. what was that word you used what consternation consternation. <laughs> hey, I was about to Google that myself, your brother. Right. Hey, that's a that's a small word for days. The main people who complain about the idea or 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 operate with this exasperation around the lack of imagination around the you know, defunding the police operate in neighborhoods where police presence is slim to none. Right. So, and pleasant, and pleasant with, when it is done. We operate with this idea that we just shouldn't have, like we operate as if this is completely unconventional and unorthodox, when in reality, the main white folks and bourgeois black folks who object to the idea or notion of defunding the police live in neighborhoods where police don't exist. Not yes. that they don't factually possist in the physical realm, but they don't exist in terms of a police presence. They don't yes. exist in terms That's of harassing. a a carceral presence to extort funds from the citizenry. Yes. That, that you know, and that's, it's, I, I'm glad you said it that way. Um, conservatives and, and Negroes with money, right. Get to a certain point where all they talk about is government intervention, right? If the government would just get out of my way, I can be great. Just let me be great. Right. Mm. But what you were talking about with the extortionate practices of the state using the police in order to take out the trash and do their dirty work is actually the biggest intervention around the country. So the same way that Dr. King was talking about, uh, you know, socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor, what they're talking about is no regulations and no interventions for the rich, but we're gonna make sure that to the tune of what, I think it's 10 million or so uh, you know, uh, police interventions every year. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous, especially when you look at how it's weighted to people of color, more specifically, black people and poor people. I mean, it just it just doesn't really make much sense when you think about it, especially when you look at, like you share, Corey, the, the budgets. Now, I mean, if budgets are truly moral documents, then what does that say that we actually yeah. value? I mean, that budget correlates directly to how we are number one in military over, I think, the next 26 nations combined when it comes to our might and will. Yeah, I, I watched, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, an economics podcast, 
and they had on a city council person from uh, Seattle. And he said that they spend more on public safety and criminal justice than all but in, in uh, King County than all but seven countries. It is extortion. Because here's the Especially thing. Especially when, oh, go, go ahead. I would say, here's the thing, because at the end of the day, usually with programs and situations and studies and everything that, can, that requires funding and continuous funding, the only, if, the only orgs that, that continue to get funding and increase funding are organizations that create change in better situations, right? And so if, if let's, let's say if the police, let's compare the police, let's say if they were a, um, a medical study, right? If over a hundred years, the, situ the, 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 the disease you were fighting got worse and worse and worse, that, that medical study wouldn't continue to get more and more money. It eventually gets shut down. That's correct. Yes. You see what I'm saying? But yet we look at the police and the system is not working and it's getting worse and worse and worse and cities continue to throw more and more and more money at it. We are in New World in a society that, you know, profits off of copaganda that allows us to believe that cops are more effective at solving crimes than they really are. So, you know, we think that whenever there's a murder or there's a, uh, there is a serial killer then, or there's a, a, a mass rapist on the loose, then the cops are going to bring that person to justice. And then the facts in the matter is that very rarely does that happen. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, the easiest violent crime to commit in this country is rape. Because only, only one in 50 men accused of rape is ever prosecuted. And for, even though four out of five women know the person who raped them, only one in 50 is ever prosecuted. So, and on top of that, across the U.S., in police precincts all over the U.S., more than 400,000 rape kisses are untested. They are yep. sitting in the archives of the police precincts all over this country. Wow, I never heard 400,000 rape kits are untested. So let me give you a breakdown. So in the city of Los Angeles, there are 12,000 untested rape kits. In New York, there are 17,000 untested rape kits. In Memphis, there are 12,000 untested rape kits. Detroit, 11,000. So, 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 so help understand what's at stake here. Even when it comes to homicides, police only have about a 60% clearance rate on homicides. What that means is for every murder, then 60% of those results in a conviction. Doesn't mean they found the killer. It just means they result. That's, no, no, that's not a conviction. That's the arrest, right? Right. So for in, 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 in 10 murders, 60, six, six, six of those murders, six of those murders result in an arrest, right? That means that you got close to a 50% chance of getting away with murder. Getting off. Let, let me let me add some more stats about uh, what you were saying as far as violent crimes, and we'll we'll get to murders in a second. Every thousand sexual assaults, and this is compiled by Rain, uh, which spends all their time and research on uh, sexual violence, but they actually added some more uh, some more different things just to give us an idea of the lack of effectiveness of police. 
1,000 sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. Out of those, only 230 out of 1,000 are actually reported. And out of 230, only 46 actually lead to arrest. Robberies, people always, the first thing somebody asks is if somebody breaks in your house, who are you going to call? I'm not calling nobody. You know who I'm calling? I'm calling Smith and Wesson or I'm calling Mossberg if I'm there. And if I'm not, they done already took my shit. So somebody's just filling out paperwork, you know? I mean, but out of a thousand robberies, 619 are reported to the police and only 167 reports lead to arrest. Now, if we really get to convictions and incarcerations, that'll leave people really depressed. So we'll, we'll put the uh, full stats in the show notes or uh, on the social media. Uh, but then when we get sounds to like assault- Sounds like what you're saying to me is it's just, I just, Des called it extortion, but it's like an elaborate scheme because crime pays, but there's nothing being solved. This is what police, what, what people need to understand. In black communities, we are simultaneously over-policed and under-policed. Mm. What they do is they go in and make sure they get the numbers because the numbers for quote unquote crime is what makes everybody fearful. And they can say, this is what crime is happening, but they don't tell you what, okay, let's get rid of crime. We would not pick these motherfuckers to get rid of crime because they don't get rid of crime. They're you know, if, and, and that's where I always start with the conversation. People have been, um, you know, indoctrinated by the propaganda. They have been. And so my question is always, I just frame it like this. Why do you want to decrease crime, eliminate crime as much as possible? Or is it that you just want to hold on to the institution of police? Because people don't realize that's what their are The argument is that we just love the police and we know it uh, just across the board. I think police have like a, 60 some cent, some percent across all races and backgrounds and socioeconomic status around 60 some percent approval rating. That's because people don't know what the fuck police do. Mm-hmm. So here's another thing. Um, when it comes to police and our criminal justice system as a whole, we've never put any effort towards preventative care proactively engage in communities and serve with um, with the services they need that could prevent the crime. We want to let things run rampant and get worse and then penalize the result and the consequence of the, uh, the result of what's of the situation that got worse that we should have treated from the get-go. Sounds like so you have cancer. Programs? I'm just going to... Huh? We need more programs? We need more... Uh, we, there's programs, resources... Uh, family education, health resources. We need a lot more things in our communities that a lot of that police money can be going to to prevent the crimes from even happening from the get-go. We, we, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that could be happening. We keep trying to uh, to treat the results of situations versus treat the cause and actually care about people. But they would rather take art out of schools. So they're not trying to give us programs. And counselors and mental health professionals and all the other resources that are actually needed in schools that would help young men and young women figure out whatever challenges they're going through before they even result to some of the things they're being penalized for. All right. So you're an educator. Is there I'm, any I'm real- so, so out of respect for my wife and other 
really dope education. I'm in education. I'm not an educator. So I never, I never taught a day in my life. So you're in education. Based on your perspective, why do we need school resource officers, a.k.a. cops and schools? We need, so one, I don't think we need them. Two, people feel like they need them because they never want to address anything that a child might be going through before they react to something that sets them off. Because also, I've been in discipline since 2001. And I've worked with thousands of kids. I can maybe name you one or two that ever just went off because whatever they had going on just set them off. It's all, it's 99% of the time there was something in a child provoked that provoked a kid. Um, there is something going on at home that creates that attitude within that child. Um, a lot of times it's, it's, it's parents that just let them do whatever the heck, heck they want to do. So they come to school and it's the only time they ever see structures that they react as such. But we don't need them. If we, use the money they use for resource officers if we put that in pre-k programs and literacy programs and uh early like preschool programs um in regards to educating kids but at the same time educating their parents and helping their parents succeed and overcome their own challenges as well then you wouldn't have any of the issues people feel they need resource resource officers for right. i didn't have resource officers when i was in high school and i was a terror and this is interesting because then we're also talking about the school to prison pipeline. Uh, and this is why I think it's instructive for us to really talk about the entire carceral state. Mm. And so when you're talking to uh, somebody like Angela Davis, who's a prison abolitionist, uh, she kind of just sees police abolition as one and the same because they, they are inextricably tied to each other. They are, they are a part of the same system. And so we extend that system. And then like what you were saying, we've taken out art programs. We've taken out counselors. We've taken out different resources inside the schools that these students who need it most. And we put police officers. But then we've also given zero tolerance policies where if something happens, then they just get expelled. Not even suspended anymore. I I would be expelled. And people think I'm one of the good ones. And I think that's an important point that you're making there, Joshua, because very often we're not trained to see the entire the entire logistical scale of the carceral state. So when I talk about carceral state, I'm talking about a society that's built around prisons. And the reason why it's difficult for a lot of Americans to understand or see the United States as a carceral state is because we've been fed a heavy diet of freedom and individualism. And yet we are the biggest imprisoner of people per capita than any country in the world. We have more prisoners in the United States of America than in China or India. And let, let me, let me jump on that point with you does. Go ahead. Um, and I, Cause I was looking for this stats, these stats that I found a while back from um, U.S. Department of Education. There are 1.7 million students in schools with cops, but have no guidance counselors. Wow. 1.7 million? 
Oh, 1.7 million students are in schools with cops with no counselors. Three million students are in schools with cops, but without nurses. Six million students are in schools with cops, but no, social, no school psychologists. 10 million students are in schools with cops, but no social workers. Mm. If anybody with good sense can tell me that is not indicative of a system that's going to end in more students entering the prison, ju the criminal justice system and the prison system, I, I'd pay to hear that argument. And it I think that it just underscores the point that I'm making, Jamal, which is- That's what I'm saying, that's why I wanted to jump on that. Understand, that. right, that gives you an idea to understand the scope of the supply chain of the carceral state. So in order for any industry to flourish, it has to have a supply chain. It has to have inputs and outputs, right? Just like for Major League Baseball, you have to have a farm system in order to recruit players up and, and help them to matriculate in their talents and their skills. In the NBA, you got a G League. In football and the NFL, you got the NCAA, right? And for the prison industry, <laughs> what, what's unbeknownst to most people is that you've got schools and zip codes that are predisposing children to the carceral state. And it's not an issue because these are the children that not only uh, society disfavors, but also people even within our own racial groups disfavor due to class. So yep. it's easy for white folks and black bougie folks to dismiss or wave away the folks in the bluff, to wave away folks in Dixie Hills, to wave away folks on the west side or in Clayton County, because that's not my problem. And we're still loading bodies up into a system that Michelle Alexander has already shown us that we have more black people under the supervision of the criminal justice system now than we did 10 years before the Civil War. And if that's not alarming enough to get you off your ass and do something about it, I don't know what is. On top of the fact that a while back, and I, and I, and I need to Google this soon, because back when I first heard it, I never had a chance to, I never, I never took, didn't take the time to check it out. But there was a, a stat that was being used by a number of different speakers in the education realm that stated prisons would use uh, fifth grade CRCT scores to determine how many cells they need to be, they can plan on building. Mm. Mm -hmm. I've, I've Based seen, on I've how seen many, those numbers too. Yeah. You've seen those? And, I, and, and that's why I said I didn't want to directly quote it because I, like, I haven't, I can't source it. But prisons use the number of kids who failed the CRCT going into middle school to determine, they had broken it down the numbers of those kind of kids who ends up, who end up create, uh, committing crimes. And so they would use those those that data to uh, gauge how many cells they needed to build for privatized prisons at, at no less. And so then that's how when I when I decide okay I need to when I plan on a hundred thousand kids being in jail, and then okay certain services have happened and now only sixty thousand are here. I need to incentivize judges and counties and other local governments to continue to give harsher sentences so I can fill these prisons up because the prisons are for, for profit exactly um, and, and another school stat i want to say that um it's cost something like 60 to seventy thousand dollars per prisoner per year 
um, and they're spending something like six to seven thousand per student per year. Yeah, right. It's actually in Georgia, it's fourteen thousand per year for per student. Correct. But still, so in the state of California, it costs more money to put a prisoner in prison than it does to send a student to Harvard. Yes, mm-hmm. I read that too. Yeah. And again, the reason why I'm bringing up the financial aspects is because oftentimes when we talk about public policy, the people who detract from it say, well, where will we get the money? The issue at mm-hmm. hand is, is not about the finances. Right. We have the means to do the right thing by every citizen. We lack the will mm. to do yes. the right thing by every citizen. And I'm one of those crazy individuals who actually believes in the ethos of the framers of the Constitution that a government is formed by the people and of the people, and most importantly, for, for the, the people. people. Um, and I, I believe in that. I believe in that ethos and I'm willing to stand for that ethos. I'm willing to die for that ethos. So, uh, my responsibility is to gather the people that I know and I love to see things that they don't want to see. And part of the ways that we've become complicit in this system is that we've averted our eyes for far too long because we look at prison as, and, and this is funny, we look at prison in very much the same way that white folks have looked at black folks who've been murdered at the hands of cops. We look at it as, oh, well, that's what you deserve because you put yourself in a position to be harmed like that. So, yeah, Ruth, Ruth Wilson uh, Gilmore calls it organized, organized abandonment. Violence. Well, no, she called it organized abandonment that leads to the organized violence, right. which is the prison system. Right. Because in a prison system, it's free range to, for people to be raped, for people to be beaten, for people to be starving, for people to be p- placed in psychological abuse, i.e. solitary confinement. And no one bats an eye because we are trained as a society that, well, that's what you get because you committed a crime. It doesn't matter if you tried to sell an eighth of weed or if you were accused of rape or if you stole a car, or if you engaged in white collar crime, the idea is you committed a crime, so that's what you get. Mm. And that right. is not, that, that runs counter to the real aim of what you know, p- you know, prisons or reformers supposed to be about originally, because it was supposed to be about rehabilitation. And right. yet there's no real focus on rehabilitation it's only around retribution. Right, right. And, and you know, it, it's interesting that you say that um, and how you're talking about how the laws are really predatory. And we can say that the state is predatory because police officers and law enforcement officers that are policing communities are agents of the state. And it made me just think because I was uh, some somebody I'm connected to on social media, uh, very conservative, you know, Trump supporter. And obviously the whole talk about law and order has come back up. And well, I guess it's never gone away in the last three years. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is I'm like, well, law, law and order is, I mean, it's really a sham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the framing of law and order is really a sham. And, you know, one, one, one thing I was thinking is that the laws are actually the structure 
by which power is expressed and through which order is enforced, right? And so what I said was that uh, the, the real threat is not when somebody actually breaks a law, but it is when power arbitrarily enforces the law. Real talk. Or worse, when power uses the violence of law to further entrench and concentrate power. And that's what we're looking at. And that's what people need to understand because, and that's what's so uh, gross about even our definition of crime. Right. What's the difference between a sociopath in the boardroom versus a sociopath on the block? I can tell you a big difference. There are four, far less sociopaths on the block than in the boardroom. Right. Far less. Because what you see is what the people that you call quote unquote criminals are making crimes of economic opportunity. There's, there's usually three main things that we can, we can say are leading causes. We don't have to go into it. People need to use Google, right? So there's poverty. So we're looking at crimes of economic opportunity, right? There's addiction and there's mental health. Well, if we flip on the mental health side, it's 25% of all police killings, one in four are people that are dealing with some type of mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And so we can flip this and break it down and bust it down a million different ways. But what we are looking at is people need to have, there, there needs to be a reckoning with people just being honest about what we, what our society is and what we, what we are built on and what our values are. And we need to really look at that and say, do we want to continue to be this way? Because there's no coincidence that Atlanta is also, what we talked about in episode one in week one, the poster child of economic inequality, mm. of income inequality and wealth inequality. There's, there's, there's no difference between that. And that's why I was getting with the, uh, with, with the uh, organized abandonment part of Yes. Wilson Gilmore's argument, right? Yes, absolutely. How 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 things have been redlined in this city, the way the interstates cut through the neighborhoods to keep people out of sight, out of sight, out of mind in this city, right? The way that you Benign can neglect. connect, what's that? Benign neglect. Benign neglect, right? And it's the same thing that's happening at the border, which is the same reason why the prisons are out in the country somewhere that it's far away that you got to drive somewhere. But then that's also the same reason why those prisons, they're actually the number one employment center in those places far away because industry has left. And this whole thing is built off of the word criminal. That's the, to me, that's kind of where we are, right? That what you said, if you are deemed a criminal, that's the new nigger. Like you, you have no rights. But we couldn't say that until we see that you have uh, broken our quote unquote contract, our social contract. Yeah, that's a mic drop right there. Definitely, I um, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> to the people that think that we are bucking the system, to the people that think that um, what we're asking for is like, outrageous or some pie in the sky idea, I would say that uh, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, 
ensure domestic tranquility. Hit them with it. Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Mm. That sounded like the preamble. That definitely is the preamble. And oh, the okay. Is we should all want that. Amen. Period. Amen. You know, it's interesting too because we're, you know, less than a month away from the 4th of July. And uh, y'all remember, I think this was two years ago, uh, Trump lost his shit uh, because uh, I can't remember which organization. They were tweeting out line by line <laughs> the uh, Declaration of Independence. And he's like, hold up. They talking about overthrowing me. Mm. And to me, one of the most important concepts for anybody in our republic to understand is the consent of the governed. We have a representative democracy that is based on the consent of the governed. So when people look around, and this is why it's easy for people to say, okay, well, that cop, he did bad. He should go to jail because they don't understand or they don't want to understand their complicity in this, uh-huh. right? And that's why people are in the streets. And so another thing that I was saying earlier was, uh, you know, really what we are looking at is, uh, from a protest perspective, that what they're saying is the order is illegitimate. The laws are illegitimate. And and whoever you send to enforce those laws, they're illegitimate as well, right? And that's why they are important because what they're doing is, uh, and even, even if windows and you know laws are broken, uh, because what they're doing is they're showing us where our systems have failed and what our institutions need to fix. And any institution that can't fix its own system failures, uh, in my opinion, must be abolished, started over from scratch. Mm. And so if we were going to do that, guys, what, what does that look like? Because folks are having a hard time saying, okay, if we were going to start this over, what would it look like? We have to be honest with the assertion that the founders of this nation or the framers of this nation did not have any of us in mind when they framed this nation nor its laws. And we have to be honest with ourselves that for (laughs) every generation of leaders, national leaders that followed, didn't have Now, we've taken them to task over their language and we've held them accountable for their ideals, but it was never their intention to include us in this liberal democracy that we live in. Final thoughts. To come to a point where, well, I'll say it like this. Let me back up. James Baldwin said, precisely at the moment that you develop a conscience, you find yourself at war with your society. Mm. We are in a place right now, not just as black men, not just as black Americans, but as people and citizens, we are being confronted with the aspects of the supply chain of violence and terrorism and overt and covert violence against many different people. And it is causing us and calling us to reevaluate and scrutinize what it means to live in this nation as a citizen, because 
the for years the thing that has been more consistent at stripping rights away from humans in this society has been criminality and at its very root laws by their nature are violent why do i say laws are violent because in order to enforce a law the state has to be willing to escalate compliance up to and including death Think about that. I'm going to say that one more time. The reason that laws are violent is because in order to enforce compliance, the state has to be willing to enforce up to and including death. So laws are naturally violent. And in a nation that has thousands of laws, that gives you an indication that these laws are not meant to protect us. These laws are meant to encage us. So one of the things that I want to leave everybody with is we can go on and on and on talking about the effectiveness of our current system and the deleterious effects of the carceral state. But what I want to leave people with is there is a way forward. There's a way to do this. There are programs that can be funded, uh, but more specifically, there is an organization that's operating out of Eugene, Oregon, uh, and that is also, uh, I believe, headed to Seattle and some other places where folks are trying to figure out, well, what, what can we do? And that program is called CAHOOTS. And it is crisis assistance helping out on the streets. And it's not meant to be a cure-all and it's not supposed to fix everything. Uh, But what it is, is it gives people someone else to call. And so what we need to think about, in my estimation, is what type of first responders do we need that don't show up with a badge and a gun? Because there's that old adage that if you show up with a badge and a gun, you're going to need to use at least one of them. And so what they've done is they've created a model that I believe that um, Minneapolis is going to uh, check out, where you respond with a mental health professional uh, for as far as a crisis worker. Um, they, they generally send a medic. Uh, we don't talk about how those first responders are, you know, those programs are underfunded. Uh, we, you can also send out different counselors. If we think about how frequently domestic violence, uh, causes things to spiral, even if somebody does come and intervene, we don't really need that. That's something that's part of the reason why domestic violence actually perpetuates because people feel like specifically women, they're in between a rock and a hard place. If they're, you know, especially if they're not the breadwinner. Uh, And that's generally how a lot of these things spiral. The most important thing I think that we need to understand is that the monetary cost to society is actually greater with more police interventions because people lose their jobs and lose their livelihoods. And so uh, what you're going to see is either um, what we've seen, not what we're going to see, what we have seen is sometimes more crime, uh, but almost always more need for the welfare state. And so if people really care about um, not just people, 
But like the bottom line, everybody's talking about budgets and efficiency. I think that we really need to look forward and seeing how can we spend less on what happened in Atlanta. We've got long range audio devices. If, if For the uninitiated, they were hitting protesters with sonic booms. They're going around in armored trucks and armored cars. They're flying drones and using technology to identify protesters. Uh, and they, they've got all this technology where it's like, well, what happens if we start putting that technology in the classroom? Mm. Instead of throwing tear gas, right? Why don't we wipe the tears of the students? That's where we are in our society. And I'm glad that we're finally in a moment in time where people are trying to pay attention. I would just admonish people to move beyond their comfort and to really dig in to try to figure out some new solutions. And Jim Clyburn is dead ass wrong. He needs to shut the hell up. He can't start something. He can't stop something he did not start. And Joe Biden, just because you learned systematic systemic racism uh, is a term that he's been throwing around. Uh, you know, but he still wants to increase 300 million, the police uh, federal uh, supplements, $300 million. So we have to demand better. And there are ways people just need to dig in and commit to actually doing something. Commit to actually looking at the 40, 50, damn near 60 years of research and theory and uh, different programs that have been rolled out. This is not something new. Uh, it's it's just about what Des said. Do we have the will to do what it takes? To piggyback on the gentleman said, um, do we have the will to do what needs to be done? Um, and I would urge our school system to break away from that school to prison pipeline, um, break away from uh, having classes and escorting students from each class as if they're transferring from cell block to cell block. I would encourage school systems to challenge how schools are built in different neighborhoods. Schools that tend to be built in underserved neighborhoods seem to look like prisons with thin windows, uh, the weird tile on the floor, the white brick walls, um, and then how they handle discipline with students um, in a very penal way instead of uh, a nurturing and developmental way, especially in the younger ages. Uh, so that would just be my urge. Uh, at the end of this conversation. Thank you guys. You just tuned in to episode three of the Milk Does Podcast. Hopefully you were enlightened and entertained. Enjoy the rest of your week. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Milk Does Podcast and make sure to follow us and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you.